Well, I can testify, having just driven 3,000 miles to Texas and back, to a number of things. A, this is a glorious country and it's fun to drive around places and see things. I saw amazing things. Um, I also saw a lot of dry nothing. Um, but I, I had a great time there. Susie and I want to extend our gratitude to you, precious friends, uh, just <clears throat> for the time to be able to go and to be with Hannah and her husband, Ethan, and now our grandson, Moody. Uh, it's, it's not what you think. It's not that glorious a story. Really, they were just standing in a registrar's office in Texas and somebody asked the question of a cute old man in front of them, what's your name, sir? And he said, Moody. And they said, that's it. And they called their son Moody. So there's nothing about DL in here. Or uh, I just thought I'd say that so I didn't have to explain it to all of you over the course of the next few months. <laughs> Many of you also prayed for, uh, in addition to praying for me and for Susie, for Hannah and Moody, also prayed have been praying for a pastor for that church uh, that Hannah attends, Calvary Bible Church in Andrews, and the Lord has answered those prayers with a, uh, a really faithful man, a very skilled preacher. I got to hear him, I think, four times, and uh, again, I'm just very grateful for God's goodness to us. It's amazing. Um, I'm very humbled and grateful for all your care. Uh, somebody put food in my fridge and people have invited me for dinner. I, I, I was looking forward to losing some weight and it looks like I'm not going to. Um, anyway, Susie is still out there. She'll be there for another couple of weeks helping Hannah along. Well, a few weeks ago, we began to consider Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. You remember he had preached at Pentecost, and in chapter 3, we pick up his second sermon, and we're going to pick up right where we left off, right in the middle of that sermon in chapter 3 and verse 19. Before I read this, I again, I want to emphasize a couple of things. We mentioned time and again how critical it is that we understand context. It's very easy to misunderstand the Bible if you are not reading the Bible in context. And I want to point out two very important things if we're to understand the thrust of what Peter is getting at in this message. We must first understand a point that I made last time, and that is that Peter is preaching to Jews. You remember in chapter 2 that the Jews had come up to an obligatory feast, to the Feast of Pentecost, and there they were, uh, gathered en masse, and Jerusalem was just choked with Jews who had traveled from all over the place to attend the feast. So it is in chapter 3 that that crowd is still in town, and they have come to the temple for the observance of the afternoon prayers, and Peter is preaching, and it's worth noting that he is preaching in the language of the Torah. He is preaching in Jerusalem. He is preaching at the temple, the very center of all of Jewish religious life and worship. He is preaching to his fellow Jews. He, he refers to his brothers, according to the flesh, as the men of Israel. The next message he will preach, right on the heels of this, remember that chapter 3 and 4 are a unit, will be before the Jewish leadership. Last time, we considered the, the loaded terminology that Peter used to, to help these Jews understand exactly who it was that they had crucified, who it is that they had abandoned and disowned. You remember that Peter calls them, and again, we're listening here these 2,000 years later, having been around the church, we hear the word Jesus, and we understand that, that that term means Jehovah saves. These Jews understood the meaning of that name as well. Peter refers to Jesus as his servant, using the language of the servant's songs in Isaiah. Jesus is the suffering servant. He refers to Jesus as the holy and righteous one 
intimating at Christ's deity, and then he calls him the author of life, the very source of life, the one who has life, both spiritual and physical, within himself. And he refers to Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So all of these names were pregnant with meaning to Peter's Jewish audience. For those who were steeped in the Old Testament, they understood So it's important for us to note that there is a very heavy Jewish undercurrent in all that Peter is preaching here. He's talking about things like covenants and prophets and and the fathers. This just isn't the kind of message that one would preach to a group of Gentiles. You can see that if you look at the Apostle Paul and his approach in evangelism in chapter 17 in the book of Acts, You won't find this kind of language. It won't be of this sort of Jewish flavor. You know, you you talk about Christ to a group of Gentiles, and they think that's the the name on Jesus' mailbox, right? They think that's his last name. It was Joseph and Mary and Jesus Christ. No. Christ is a title. And again, you know that because you've been in the church But the Gentiles of this day would not have understood all these things. So Peter is obviously preaching to a Jewish audience, but this is something else that I want you to see. Secondly, the emphasis of Peter's preaching here is corporate. And you're going to have to concentrate going through this passage to keep reminding yourself of that. Because if there's anything Americans are not, it's corporate. America as a culture and as a nation is individual first and foremost. We are me before us. This is super challenging for us. We highly prize the individual and we tend to hear all that Peter is preaching through that kind of interpretation where where we're the only ones in the mirror. We're, We're the ones Peter are talking to, to me personally. Of course, there's an element of truth in that. He is preaching to Jewish individuals, but there's a very obvious emphasis upon Israel as God's people here. Look at verse 9. He says, all the people saw him walking. You look at verse 10. They, all of them, were, were filled with wonder and amazement. There, there is this sense of all of the people. There's, there's a mass of people. And then we read words like the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Again, the God of our fathers. This, the Gentile couldn't relate to that sort of thing. All of the you statements in here are plural. Having come from Texas, they're y'alls. Y'all delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they all deny Christ personally, individually? Were all of them there? Were all of them shouting crucify? Were all of them handing over to Pilate? No. They did not all do that. And yet, in another sense, corporately, they were all there. It was Israel who turned Jesus over. And you couldn't make the distinction, well, no, no, that was just some of our leaders. I mean, I I didn't, I I didn't. There's none of that. This this is clear in in the Bible throughout, and we have to learn to think in these terms. We've been talking about this even in relation to the church, haven't we? That we tend to think very personally about having received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior to the exclusion of our commitment to one another, of us being saved out of the world, that group of people, and into the body of Christ, there's much in the Bible that is dealing with the corporate nature of things. And so Peter has brought an indictment against the nation. It wasn't that every individual in the crowd had said, give us Barabbas, crucify Christ. But that was the basic posture of the people of Israel. The nation did not receive him. The nation crucified him, turned him over to the Gentiles. 
And I've said it before, I'll say it again, and we need to be reminded because the question comes up, well, who crucified Christ? The answer is everybody. The Jews did it, undoubtedly. They turned him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles nailed him to the cross. You and I, each one of us, know that Christ was crucified, what, for us and for our sins. We wouldn't have done any better in that day. Ultimately, we find out in Isaiah 53 that it was God the Father who was pleased to crush his son if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. Here again, he's going to speak of Moses, and then he's going to speak of the prophets, and he's going to speak of the covenant that God made with their fathers. He says, you are the sons of the prophets. Again, would you ever say that to a Gentile audience? You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. See, there is this corporate identity. They were God's people, and they had an inheritance. Look down at verse 23. Here we see this individual and corporate being worked out. Note that it says it will be that every soul, that's the individual, that does not heed that prophet, we shall see that that is Jesus, shall be utterly destroyed, what? From among the people. There's the corporate. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also proclaim these days, it is you all who are the sons of the prophets. Look down at verse 26. For you all, first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you all by turning every one of you. You see, there's the individual. So we have here Peter preaching to Jews. There is, of course, it, it is that Peter is preaching to each and every person who is there individually, and yet the emphasis of all that Peter is preaching is corporate, and that's going to be vital to understanding this text as we move forward from verse 19. Now, what's happened so far? Well, you remember there was a noteworthy, supernatural display of the Lord's miraculous power. There was, there was a man who had been lame from birth. No one had ever healed a man lame from birth, and here Jesus does this through his appointed apostles, Peter and John. You'll remember that this served to be the occasion for Peter's sermon, and Peter had to deflect the credit of it. People were awed at the miracle worker, and Peter says, no, no. <laughs> this is not about me. This is not about John. And ultimately, this isn't even about the man who's been healed. All of this should get you thinking about the man that you put on a cross. It is that man. It is the name of Jesus, verse 16. That is, all that Christ is and all that Christ has done, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is by his doing that this man stands before you in perfect health. And that, of course, was a powerful demonstration that Christ is living, he is risen, he is ascended, he is ruling, he is powerful, he is mighty, and he is building his church. Then Peter brings this devastating and stinging indictment saying, you, you, you denied and disowned your Messiah. You put Yahweh's choice servant on the cross, the one who is holy without sin. He is altogether righteous. You ruled him a sinner and a blasphemer, and you put him on the cross. Even pagan Pilate understood better than that. He, he asserted Jesus' innocence over and over. He wanted to release him, but you said, no, we will have Barabbas. We'll take the murderer over the author of life the taker of life over the author of life. And then Peter's tone softens and he says, you know, I know you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. That is not to say that they were not guilty for what they had done, that they were not going to be held accountable for those things. They had put a righteous man to death. But they did not know that Jesus was their Messiah. If they had known that, they would not have crucified him. And that's a point the Bible makes on a couple of occasions. 
you crucified this Christ, and you can begin to, you can only imagine the weight that must have fallen upon this crowd as they listened to the things that Peter was preaching. Yet Peter says, I know you did it in ignorance, and beyond that, God raised him from the dead. And this Jesus is risen. He was crucified, he is risen, he is alive, and he is working even now. Everything that God said he was going to do, he has thus fulfilled. God worked through your ignorance and he worked through your wickedness. You killed him, but that's exactly what God had decreed. That's exactly what God had planned. That is precisely what God intended to do. And he did it through you. You're as guilty as it gets, but there is hope for you, Peter says. God's plan was not simply that Christ would be handed over and crucified. God's plan was not simply that Christ would then be raised from the dead. God's plan was that he would triumph over sin and that ultimately he would deliver sinners just like you. Verse 19, therefore, here is the application of this message that Peter preaches. Therefore, he says, you must repent and return. You must repent and return. This is an astonishing thing, isn't it? You put yourself in the position of someone taking the life of your son unjustly, and how, how willing would you then be to, to call those people to repentance and to return and to life and to forgiveness? This is an amazing picture of the grace of God through the lips of Peter calling these people to repent and to return. You remember that back in chapter 2, Peter had, had prosecuted his case, and in verse 38, we read that Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, the answer is no different here in chapter 3 and verse 19. What does it mean to repent? Most of you are aware that the, the word means to change the mind, technically, but it's more than that. It's, it's a change of mind that results ultimately in a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of life. Many people feel sorry for their sins, but the Bible speaks of a repentance unto death. The Bible speaks of a sorrow that's according to the world. Getting caught and feeling bad is not repentance. If it were, these people would have already repented. They're feeling their guilt. But Peter here calls them to have a change of mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, we should pull over again, and I just want to remind you about this, that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was one gospel that Jesus authorized, and we found it in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. And I gave it to you in three pillars. You remember what they were? That the Christ would suffer. All of those truths which cluster around the cross, the suffering of Christ, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the need for a substitute, someone to pay the price and to atone for our sins. All those truths that cluster around the cross of Christ. And then Jesus said, you're not only, that's, that's only the first part of the gospel I give to you. The second is this, that the Christ should be raised on the third day. All those truths that cluster around the empty tomb, that, that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead, that he conquered death, that he was accepted of the Father and therefore our sins have been forgiven, that he is returning again that the Christ would suffer, that he would rise from the dead again on the third day. And what was that third pillar of the gospel? Simply this, from Jesus' mouth, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from where? Jerusalem. And that's precisely what we see the apostles doing. And I'm just going to point it out every time we bump into it in the book of Acts. It's not rocket science. Jesus said, do this, they did that. The gospel was about preaching the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and that you need to repent and believe the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the message throughout the book. This is the gospel that Jesus authorized. 
And so when he calls them to repent, he's calling to them to, yes, begin with a godly sorrow. It begins there, a a recognition of your guilt and your shame before God. But then he's calling them to act upon that conviction, to turn away from it, to turn around, to turn from. There is this radical shift in life from pursuing your path and serving yourself to now being oriented fully to being a disciple of Christ, a learner, a follower who goes his way and not your way. You need to agree with God, Peter says, about his Christ. There's this very intentional determination to forsake unrighteousness and pursue what is true and what is right. And true repentance always bears fruit. It's very obvious to everyone in the room when somebody has truly repented. Peter has given them plenty of evidence that Christ is who he said he is. He's given them plenty of evidence that they crucified their Messiah, that they came to a wrong verdict and a wrong conclusion. And he says to them, look, you've got to turn around. You've got to get on another highway. You've got to make a U-turn. You need to do a 180. They need to abandon their errant assumptions about Jesus and embrace him as Christ the Messiah and their king. Secondly, he tells them you must return. And really, this is a word that's used frequently in the New Testament to talk about turning toward God. It's just the flip side of repentance. You are turning away from something in repentance and you are turning toward something when you return. It is the companion of repentance. So Peter is calling them to turn from their sinful attitudes and actions against Christ and instead they must embrace the very one that they put on the cross. It's another way really of simply saying this. He's commanding them to repent, to turn away from sin and to believe in the son whom God sent. Now again, we hear those words and the tendency is to hear this at a very, very personal level. But I want you to see that Peter's focus really is on the whole. His focus is on the nation. He is talking to a corporate group of people and he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to change their posture toward Christ. In other words, if all of you will repent, if you will all turn from your sin and if all of you will return and believe in the crucified and risen Messiah, four benefits will come to you. And the first one is this, your sins will be forgiven you. Look at it there in verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that, there's the purpose statement, so that your sins may be wiped away. What an amazing statement again about the overwhelming grace of God. He just finishes cataloging all that they did to Christ and now they're told that God will erase all of that. Again, I, I think you just, you, you, we don't live here. You, you, put this, you put this in the context of even accidentally in some way you, you, you are careless coming around a curve and you run over a kid and you kill him. How hard would it be for you to, 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 to let that go? This is infinitely greater than that, yes? Here are the people, here is the nation that, that hung the man, that counted him accursed. And now they're told that God will forgive them in full if they repent. Their sins will be wiped away. A wonderful expression, common to the day. It talked about wiping ink from vellum or from papyrus, from from some sort of paper, whatever it is they were writing on. In ancient times, that ink did not penetrate into the vellum. It just sat on top. And so it, it would be like a, a whiteboard. You're familiar with that. And, and what's being said here is that all these things that Peter had just indicted them for have been written on this whiteboard, and God will, God will erase that. It will be white again. It'll be a blank slate. All your sins every last one of them written down and recorded as evidence against you in the court of heaven. God will wipe them out. He will literally blot out the very record of your sins. 
Do you remember David crying out in his great penitential psalm, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities? That, that's the idea. Erase them. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, God declares, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The same language is used in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. We, we read that God has graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out, literally having blotted out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why for those who have hoped in Christ that your sins, though they are as scarlet, let's just be honest, God calls you to reason with him that through the cross of Christ, Christ was struck on your behalf that you might be forgiven and made what? White as snow. How white is snow, by the way? That's why the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> That's infinitely far, isn't it? He's removed our sin. God will obliterate your sin, and he, he will... He will leave no trace. And this is the glorious news that the very same promise that Peter is making here to, to a Jewish audience as God's authorized representative, he makes, brothers and sisters, to us. If you will turn from your sin, if you will change your opinion about Christ, if you will listen to all that the gospel says to you, that Christ was given, that he might be sacrificed for your sins. If you can embrace that, turn away from trusting yourself, turn away from hoping in your works. Look to Christ and Christ alone, and here's the promise. God will blot it all out, all of it. Praise be to God. You will have a new heart and clean hands and a clear conscience and you will be accepted by God and kept by God forever and ever and ever and ever. Never again to have any record of wrongs. They were all paid for by Christ. Well, there's a second and a third benefit that are spoken of in verse 19 and 20. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may wiped away, be wiped away. That was the, the first benefit in order that, so here's another purpose statement, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. These are two benefits that are connected at the hip. We're going to take them one at a time, but notice this, that in, th there is a promise of times of refreshing and there is a promise of the return of Christ. Grammatically, that sentence speaks of two things that are knit together. This is a twofer. You, you are going to see through repentance that times of refreshing will come to you and the sending of, of Christ, the one who's been appointed for you. Your Messiah will come back. We're going to take these, as I said, one at a time. And again, I would remind you, be, be wary of hearing this at an individual level. Uh, many do. They, they take this to, to simply mean this, that if we repent, if I repent, I will be forgiven my sins and, I, uh, and he will begin to give me personally as a Christian seasons of refreshment and that someday as the gospel progresses, Jesus will eventually return. And I'll know renewal and new life in Jesus. And I would say to you that that is true, all of that. I just don't think that's what Peter is getting at in this passage. I believe he's being much more specific and much more pointed 
than simply the personal blessing that comes to those who repent and believe. The first blessing was that their sins would be forgiven. The second one is this. The second consequence of repentance will be that refreshment will come. He says times of refreshment. And that is connected, if you look down at verse 21, to this uh, period of restoration. He says, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. Those two things are connected. And this word times, there, there are a couple of words in Greek for time, and this word time speaks of a specific time, an appointed time, a time that is fitting, a, a, a predetermined period of time. So whatever we think these times of refreshing are referring to, it cannot refer to simply a general sense of being refreshed because I have faith in Jesus. No, Peter's speaking about a specific time. In fact, the same term is used over in Acts chapter 1. Look back there again in verse 6. You'll remember this. Jesus is about to ascend back to the Father, and the disciples have a question that is burning in their hearts. It says, so when they came together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times. He doesn't deny there is a time. He just says it's not for you to know what it is or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. He did not reprove them. He did not make a correction to their understanding about the reality of a future kingdom. The kingdom will be restored to Israel. He, he underscores that God has a specific time for that restoration, and that, I believe, is what Peter is talking about in this passage. And he uses this word, refreshment, and he says it comes from the presence, literally the face, of the Lord. This comes from God's throne. It is God who is the one who is sending this refreshment forward. And the word means simply that, rest, to refresh. It, it literally means to cool a wound by blowing. You've probably done that before in your son's hand when he crashed and burned on the pavement. And you said, come here. And you were blowing on it to give him what? Relief. Peter here is speaking about Christ's return, he's tying it to all of that, and I believe his earthly reign, his millennial kingdom, that thousand-year period spoken of in Revelation 20 that's depicted really in detail all over the Old Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the intermediate kingdom because it comes on the heels of this age but before the eternal state. And it is that time when Jesus will rule in Jerusalem from the throne of David and he will subdue the earth. He will rule with a rod of iron. He will vindicate his name before the very eyes of those people who mocked him and murdered him. And it will be a time the prophets say, of renewal, of creation. We'll see some of this. We're going to read some in a minute. A great time of prosperity, a great time of peace. It will be a great time where righteousness will be exalted in the earth and ultimately Israel will have the rest that has eluded them all of these years. I was thinking about all of this even in the context of the present situation in Israel even now. The history of the Jewish people is a long history of suffering, isn't it? Of persecution, of occupation, of dispersion spread all over the globe, of, of judgment ultimately. And here we see this long war that's been going on for so many millennia rekindled yet again. And the Bible says it will be that way till the end when the nation will then turn to its Messiah and they will turn in repentance and in faith, and we'll see that in a moment. But I want to show you a little bit of the character of this millennial kingdom. And we'll just look at it from the book of Isaiah, just for time's sake. Why don't we turn there? Isaiah 
We'll begin in chapter 2 and verse 2. Just some short snippets, brief pictures. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Now it will be in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh, that's Jerusalem, will be established as the head of the mountains, Zion, right? And will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. We get this picture of all the nations coming to Israel and ultimately coming to the the king of kings. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Think of that. My heart breaks for all that's going on in the Middle East. You see the pictures and what is it that compels war in this world? And we know the answer to that question. This will be a different time under the rule of a present Christ. Look at chapter 11. It will be a time of peace and righteousness and rest We just saw in Isaiah 2, it will be a time of international harmony. There there will be no fighting. Verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, then a shoot full spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Who's he speaking of? Christ. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor render a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with upright for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. They will not be releasing people from convicted murderers and rapists and all the things that we see in our day so that they might do their wickedness again. No, Jesus will rule in righteousness and he will hold the wicked accountable. Verse five, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And look at at the change here in in the animal kingdom, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Now, wolves always like to dwell with lambs, but lambs do not so much like to dwell with wolves, right? But, but there will be peace. The leopard will lie down with a young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a young boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. I know how many of you hate snakes. No worries. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. Again, this is Jewish language, isn't it? For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 27 and verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and bud, and they will fill the whole earth with produce. There's this picture of the desert suddenly blossoming, and I got to experience just a taste of that driving back this last week. We had a great amount of rain in the West this last year, And you can't believe that in places like Death Valley, there are actually still remaining lakes of water, wildflowers blossoming like crazy. Even down, you just come over the mountains out of Southern California, there's still standing water in the furrows 
lakes of water in that area that has all those signs about, you know, Newsome, you rotten guy, give us back our water. Well, there it is. God gave it to them. There's water aplenty. And you can't believe all the crops that are growing, the greenness, here in the month of October. Oh, what a change this will be. Look at chapter 35. Verse 1, the wilderness and the desert will be delighted and the Arabah will rejoice and flourish like the crocus. It will flourish profusely and rejoice with rejoicing the shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen lip hands. Give courage to the knees of the stumbling. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Don't miss this. And the lame will leap like a deer. We looked at this text, didn't we, some weeks ago and we looked at the miracle. All that Jesus does when you, when you think about it, all of his healing of the lame and giving the blind eyes to see and the deaf ears to hear and all of that stuff is a, is a foreshadow of what he is going to bring in its fullness in the future. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And the roadway will be there, a highway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass by on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way. There'll be righteousness in the earth. Ignorant fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast will go upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They will attain delight and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. My friend, no matter how heavy it is for you at this moment, these are the days ahead and these are the days which have been ordained for us that we will be part of them. There are a number of other places we could go. I just want to point out in Isaiah 65. We'll just pick up in verse 19. Uh, verse 18. But be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create, says the Lord. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people and there shall no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Think of that. Some of you know the agony of that. I knew the temptation to fear that. Children do not always immediately flourish once out of the womb, do they? And we spent about a week praying earnestly that that Little Moody might wake up enough to be able to take food. What if he doesn't? Things like that happen in this world, but not in this day, not in this age, not in the millennial kingdom. There will not be an infant in it who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and they will inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. Nobody's going to take your stuff. No, they will plant and, and, and another will not eat, he says. As for the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or, build, or bear children for terror, for they are the seed of those blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. And it shall be that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. God, God will be right there. 
And the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in my holy mountain, says Yahweh. When will all this come to be? Will it come to be when Christ returns? And Christ will return when the Jews repent and return. And Zechariah 12, and you can read this later just for time's sake at this point, chapter 12 through 14 portrays all of it in graphic detail. Uh, let me read to you just a couple verses. Chapter 12, verse 9, it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn and in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. And he goes on to talk about this mourning and then he says in verse 13, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. You see, Peter's telling them that when Israel repents and returns to the Lord, when they change their perspective and their understanding, about Christ, the kingdom will come. And how will it come, you ask? Well, it will come with the king who will rule in righteousness. That is the third benefit. He tells them that Christ will return. Your sins will be forgiven you. Times of refreshing will come. The kingdom will come. And Christ will return. Verse 20 tells us that God will send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for them. Again, the relationship's not over. God is not done dealing with them yet. The calling is irrevocable. The covenants are forever. There is hope. There will be a fountain open for them in that day for sin and for impurity and he tells them that this Christ, the Messiah, was appointed specifically for who? For them. That doesn't mean that Christ doesn't include us, but it does set a priority upon the Messiah as much as he is our Christ and our Messiah in a very unique and particular way. He is Israel's Messiah. And God's not done dealing with them yet. They're being called here, as I said, I believe, to national repentance. James Boyce writes this, of this. He says, it's a future day of blessing when the Jewish people will turn to Christ in large number, numbers and, and a final age of national blessing will come. Daryl Bach, commenting on this section, says, in Jewish understanding, repentance, when it takes place en masse, that is, in total, a national repentance, can set the cycle in place that leads to the completion of God's plan, the arrival of times of refreshing and the sending of the Christ. Thomas Walker called it the golden age of blessing for the Jewish nation, and through them, a period of spiritual quickening for the world at large. In other words, Israel's repentance brings both times of refreshment and restoration and the return of Christ. And Peter is saying, look, you repent and believe. God will send Jesus back. He will establish his kingdom and you are gonna find that rest that you have always sought for. But until now, Christ remains in heaven. There's something for you to do. And you see being played out here, again, the sovereignty of God. Are you saying that the Jews can, can restrain God's will? No. But you see that tension again between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. And Jews here are being called to repent. There's this chronology. 
Israel's repentance will result in Israel's forgiveness, and, and Israel's forgiveness will result in the return of their Messiah and the establishment of the millennial kingdom and the refreshment and restoration of all things. But until that day, Christ remains in heaven. Look at verse 21, and we'll move quickly from here. From whom, I'm sorry, whom heaven must receive, that is Christ, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. What's he saying? He's saying, look, these things are not hidden. These things were not done in a corner. This is not secret. Have you read the prophets? God spoke about this restoration from way back. Isaiah spoke of it. Jeremiah spoke of it. Ezekiel spoke of it. Joel and Zechariah and Amos spoke of it. In fact, he says in verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, the first prophet, to his successors onward, they also proclaim these days. In other words, if you want to know the way forward, you've got to go what? back. If, if you wish to grasp the present, you have to handle, have a handle on the things that God has said in the Older Testament in the past. And then he gets specific. He says, consider what Moses said to you. And he points to Deuteronomy 8, 15, and 19. Moses tells the people in his day that God would raise up another prophet, another deliverer, another redeemer, another leader like him, but greater than him. And, he, and Moses says, look, you'd better listen to him. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers, and to him you shall listen to everything he says to you. And the Jews had this eager expectation, didn't they? You think about the words that we read in the Gospel of John. You remember that they were expecting. There was a messianic expectation. They were waiting for this prophet. They were aware of what Moses had said. The very people who are listening to Peter were aware of these things. And you see it in the Gospel of John. You remember when John the Baptist was drawing all those crowds, the Jewish leaders sent a delegation of Levites and priests out to him to interview him, to ask him, who are you? And one of the questions they ask is, are you the prophet? John said, nope. Are you the Christ? No. Then in chapter 6 and verse 14, you remember Jesus had fed thousands of people some bread and some fish. And when the people saw, this is John 6, 14, therefore when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, you want to know what the buzz was? You want to know what was running around through the crowd after they were eating the fish and eating the bread and their bellies were full? Everybody is talking, and what do they want to know? Well, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They were aware of this. Again, in chapter 7 and verse 40, we find crowds saying, this is the prophet, referring to Christ. And Peter says to them, you had it right. What happened? Verse 23, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter is issuing a warning. You had better listen to Jesus and you better listen to everything Jesus says. You cannot pick and choose from the Bible what you want to believe, what you are willing to bow the knee to. You cannot seek to escape the indictment of Scripture or the promises of Scripture. You've got to take it all. These are the words of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. You need to heed what Jesus is saying. You take him with a grain of salt and you hazard your destruction. You cast his words behind you, you may find yourself cast into hell, into everlasting darkness and destruction. This is instructive for us, by the way, in evangelism, isn't it? You must warn people. You must call them to account. You must help them understand that not only has Christ done something on your behalf, not only are you indicted as a sinner, but beyond that, there's an urgency to receiving this message because you don't know 
when the time is. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. You better listen to him, Peter says. And then Peter ends the message on a very encouraging note. He reminds them of their glorious heritage as God's chosen people. The fact that they were were an instrument to bring blessing to the entire world. He says in effect, it's only right for you to, it's reasonable for you. What are you thinking? This is completely natural, if you will, for you to repent and believe in Christ because he is the Messiah who was appointed for you. He did this for you. And that brings us to the fourth benefit, which is this. Promised salvation will be realized. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. Look at verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you all by turning every one of you individually from your wicked ways. This has been the plan from the beginning, beloved. And we are grateful, aren't we? For the partial hardening that has happened to Israel that we might be partakers in all of this. It should give us a sense of relief and gratitude and praise. It should make us humble. God's plan from the very get-go with this nation whom he chose over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New is this statement that salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth through this nation, specifically through the seed of Abraham, that is Christ himself. And there is a priority here. It's undeniable. It is for you first, Peter says, that Christ was sent. Which is why they're preaching from Jerusalem and then they're going to make their way out to the utter ends of the earth. Well, you might be sitting there this morning and saying, you know, look, this is all great, but (laughs) I'm a Gentile. I'm a goyim. I'm I'm a dog. What does all this mean for me? What's in this for me? Well, first of all, I would say this and caution you against it. Be wary of that sort of... uh, me-first mindset when you come to Scripture. We need to realize that it is about the glory of God and we need to see that he is up to bright and magnificent things that are, that are, that are bigger and broader and beyond anything we've ever thought. It, it wasn't as simple as just me, Jesus on a cross, and, and, and God trying to reconcile me to himself. The glory of God is that he's reconciling a, a vast multitude to himself and that is working its way out in a glorious plan and we need to be drinking in and learning all about this plan as much as we can understand about it. But I also want to say to you that from these things we learn much, don't we? Haven't we learned about the work of Jesus of Nazareth, that he is Jesus, Jehovah saves, that he is God's suffering servant who bore our wrath, that he is the holy and righteous one without any spot, without any sin, that he he is the one who was given over as the divine son to make an infinite sacrifice for our sins? Don't we learn that he is the author of life and doesn't that produce gratitude in your heart that he's given it to you? And can't we read these things and see that God made a covenant with with Abraham and that we're in that thing? Yes, the Jew has priority and that brings a certain privilege. It also brings a certain accountability and you see that in the scriptures. To whom much is given, much is required. But aren't we glad to know, aren't you contented to know that you've been grafted in to this rich root, which is the salvation of Israel?
the 11th chapter of Romans, we read that Israel stumbled over Christ and they refused their king and they crucified their king and all of that, as we've said, by the divine plan and ordination of God. And their rejection of Jesus resulted in the reconciliation of the Gentile, of the world. And it's only a partial hardening, beloved. It's only temporary, but it is that hardening that has resulted in our opportunity and that ought to produce a great gratitude in our hearts for God. But a day is coming, listen, verse 25, for I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Humility, 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 humility that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a time when the Gentiles have come in, when God has saved every last Gentile, you are going to see a vast conversion of the nation of Israel. We read these words, so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, God is faithful. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God is the point, my friends. And if you want to know what this very Jewish message should mean to you, I would say this. What it means for you and for me is that we must also repent and believe. We must humbly listen to all that Christ has said, and we must come in humility and deep gratitude. We need, really, I was thinking of a way of of illustrating this. Turn over to Matthew 15, and we'll close here. Matthew 15 We need the heart of the Canaanite woman. She was a Canaanite. These were the very people that they were, the Jews were to dispossess in the Old Testament. She's a Gentile. And we catch this episode. Verse 21. And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She understood that he was Lord. She understood that he was the son of David. This was the Jewish Messiah, and yet she comes asking for mercy and she's got this demon-possessed daughter. Verse 23, but Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away. She, she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, this is to the woman, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What would your heart do? That sounds kind of insensitive, Jesus. (laughs) And she came and she was bowing down before him. She was prostrating herself, saying, Lord, help me. She wasn't deterred. Are you Israel's Messiah? Have you just come to the lost sheep of Israel? Well, I'm lost. I need help. I need your mercy. And then Jesus 
to be honest, rebuffs her again, answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children being Israel, the dogs being the Gentiles. She still was undeterred. She said, yes, Lord, I get it. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. You see, she was not going to be deterred. She had a need. She knew where the answer was, and she was going to get it from him. Beloved, is that your heart? And her daughter was healed at once. Brothers and sisters, take hold of the salvation that has come to you from Jewish roots. And that blessing that was promised to Abraham has come to our door by the grace of God. Ethnicity is no barrier. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Repent and believe the gospel and you will receive that power to save you from your sins. You believe his message and heaven is yours. You ignore his message and you shall be utterly destroyed. Jesus said so. Let's pray. Lord, we stand back and we marvel at this plan which you have set from eternity past in which you have been working out over the millennia on this planet. Lord, we see it beginning from the very beginning in the book of Genesis and we see it all unfolded throughout the Old Testament prophets and coming still into greater and greater clarity as the, as the New Testament is written and then we see in the book of Revelation that final day as it comes and Lord, we are delighted by all that we see there. We give you praise and we thank you as the great God of mercy, the great God who, who chooses people unto salvation. Lord, we rejoice that you're a sovereign God. We thank you and praise you that you are working out your great plan and have been throughout the ages and that no one and nothing thwarts your plan. We thank you for the promise that Israel will one day turn from her sins to embrace her Savior and all Israel will be saved. Lord, we look forward to that day and we do pray for you, that nation. We continue to ask, Lord, that their eyes would be opened, that the veil would be removed, that their hearts would be softened, that they would embrace Christ. Lord, we pray as we're commanded in Psalm 122 to pray for the peace of Israel, so we ask even now for peace within her walls. Lord, we thank you that you have graciously opened up a fount and will open a fount for Israel and you have opened that fount even now for those of us that you have called. Lord, your church loves you, delights in you. We're grateful for the times of the Gentiles and grateful for the promise that you are saving out a people for yourself. Lord, we're grateful that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but that you accept all sinners who hope in Christ. And Lord, we pray this morning for any here who do not hope in Christ, that they might look to you and repent and return, that they would believe the gospel, and Lord, that you would redeem them. Thank you for your love for us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.